And even if you don't, it's like my absolute joy to serve you in, in whatever capacity you are connected to this church. Uh, it's not just that I, I let me, how do I say this? It is my dream job and I'm living my best life when I have the opportunity to serve y'all and to just hear how you're doing and to be with you as you walk through life. And uh, I was just really apparent to me over the holiday break and I'm just deeply grateful for each one of y'all. And I love you. And so thank y'all. And that goes for everybody that's not here too. You ain't here on the first service of the year. I'm not mad at you. I'm just saying I love you too. All right. <laughs> uh, hey, I already said Happy New Year. That's in my notes, but I'm going to scrap that. Uh, here's the thing. Today, as we start our new year and, and jumping into our time in the sermon, uh, I want to take some time to focus on the critical, I think maybe the most critical aspect of our faith, maybe the most critical aspect of what our faith system uh, leads us toward, what's at the heart of it, and that is none other than God's love for us. And hear me, while I know that a lot of us in here, you may have grown up in faith traditions and maybe even just faith cultures that focused on what God desires us to do, how he desires to change us, right, the, the, the desires he has for us in our life and the way we conduct ourselves. And while it is true that God's love does change us, that a very real change does come from we understand God's love. And while it's true that God's love does inspire us and like really give us a new vision for life and for the world, while all that is true, at the core of the Bible's message, at the core of the Bible's message, it's not a motivational story about growth or about change. It's not as though the Bible is about how God found some hidden potential in you to make you a successful student or successful at your job or even to make you into this incredible person that everyone loves and everyone knows and everyone adores and everyone has a positive opinion of. Yes, he has given you incredible gifts. I know, I'm, I'm just knowing some of y'all, y'all do incredible things. Just as a little highlight, and I'm just using them as a little highlight. I'm gonna, it's gonna be y'all, just so you know. I, I got an email late or midpoint last year from, what is the organization called? Apartment Life. And they sent out just a, Apartment Life is a ministry that focuses on uh, engaging apartment complexes through kind of like these ministers that they help live and they facilitate the, the cost of rent in a, in a place, and then they end up like, hey, like kind of giving them some space and time to create connection points and build fellowship and community. And they sent an email to like all the pastors on the south side, and were like, do y'all know anybody? And I was like, do I know anybody? Right? And, and I referenced them, Jerry and Anisha. And if you know anything about how Jerry and Anisha have been doing at Apartment Life, you know they're doing incredible. And they're using the very real, beautiful, powerful gifts that God has given them. That's true. Right? He's made incredible parts of each of you. Each of you have stories like that. But here's the thing. Those gifts, those incredible parts of you, or even all of your potential, right? none of those things are the point and purpose of your story. None of those things are the point and purpose of my story. And this really is hard 
to grasp because in a culture and in a society that, that defines us and defines others by what we have or how successful we've been or what we've accomplished or by our social standing or by how we can influence people or by how many followers we have, it's so tempting to believe that God's value system and what God prioritizes must be the same as what's prioritized all around us. That God desires for us to have more, to accomplish more, to be more successful, to have greater social standing, or to increase our influence in some way. Yet the Bible is clear. It takes, um, it makes it a point. Not that those things are bad, but it makes it a point to let us know that those things are not the point. Right? Whether Jesus saying that the world hates him, therefore at some point you will feel the weight of the world hating you, or that we will have trouble in this world combined with the assurance that, hey, take heart, I've overcome the world, or inviting us to follow a Messiah who tells those who ask him, where are we going, that I have nowhere to lay my head, so follow me at your own risk, or in the abandoned Savior dying on the cross alone with nothing more than one best friend, his mother, and a sister of his. Oh, and in addition to that, that cross that he's crucified on, adorned with the mocking statement, here is the king of the Jews. The Bible often goes out of its way to help us see that those things, our accomplishments, what we have, our social standing, right, everyone's opinion of us, that those things, as good as they can be, are not the point. And any of us that have truly, and I mean truly, y'all, truly given yourself to pursuing those things, whether in your actual pursuit of them or just in the belief that they will somehow hit the mark, that they are what is missing in our life, any of these things, materialism or success or social acceptance, sometimes that acceptance doesn't even go for the people that are around you as your friends, but even People like your parents, your father, your mother, a step-parent that seem to never quite believe in you. And your life has been spent just trying to get more, succeed more, change someone's opinion of you, change how your social standing is and your influence so that you can prove to yourself and these hurting and broken parts that you are more than what someone's opinion of you was. Anybody that's really given themselves to pursuing those specific things, right, you found out at some point, and if you haven't, let me tell you, you will you will find out that if those are indeed the point of what we're doing and how we're living and where we're going, then they are poor points indeed. They are poor purposes indeed. Thank God then that at the core of the Bible's message is not the story of our possessions, our success, our social standing, or our influence, but rather a story of an eternal, unrelenting, unchanging God and his eternal, unrelenting, unchanging love for us. And how that shapes our identity and our lives and our families and our communities and our homes and our cities and our world. That's why our mission statement is to make disciples that shape our communities with what? With the love of Jesus this love story of a creator and his creation, a God and his people, a father and his children, right? That story is at the heart of the Bible's message. That's where our faith starts. That's also realistically where our faith ends. 
There's a lot of other points that we get to, a lot of other studies, a lot of other classes, a lot of other moments and church experiences and pains and not pains and joys and highs and lows, but at the beginning, it oftentimes starts with a simple idea that I am loved by this heavenly father. And at the end, when we meet him in glory, it will end with the startling revelation of just how much you were loved and how much you are loved and how much you will always be loved by that heavenly father. Because of this, we're starting this year, spending the next several weeks working through an oftentimes overlooked book of the Bible, one that you maybe have not read through or maybe not studied all that much, but a book of the Bible called Malachi. It's the final book of the Old Testament and one that for the English readers in kind of like the, the Greco-Roman tradition of Christianity uh, is the conclusion of the Old Testament and, and really a transition into us seeing and beholding the beauty and glory of the coming Messiah, Jesus. And yet locked away in this small four-chapter book, it's just four chapters, so we're only going to spend about four weeks on it, um, it, it is a powerful message of God's love and his care. And today we're going to start really simple. I've already taken almost 10 minutes just doing this little introduction on God's love. And so today, for the remainder of our time, we're going to do something really simple. Right? We're just going to take a few minutes, which is the remainder of our time, and we're going to take a look at the first five verses. The first five verses. And our goal today is really to set this powerful opening statement in context of its original audience, which is Israel, and its current audience, which is us, you and me. And so with that, I want to invite you to stand, if you can, to stand with us out of respect for God's word. Uh, and I'm going to read just these first five verses at the end, I'm going to conclude with the statement, this is the word of the Lord, inviting you to respond in the traditional response, thanks be to God, uh, and then from there we'll jump in and take a look. So let's read Malachi 1, verses 1 through 5, and it says this, a pronouncement, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi, I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you ask, how have you loved us? Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I loved Jacob, but hated Esau. I turned his mountains into wasteland and gave his inheritance to the desert jackals. Though Edom says, we have been devastated, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of armies says this, they may build, but I will demolish. They will be called a wicked country and the people the Lord has cursed forever. Your own eyes will see this. And you yourselves will say, the Lord is great, even beyond the borders of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you can have a seat. Here's the thing, guys. As we start this, maybe more than any other writings in the Bible, maybe more than any other chapters or books in the Bible, what we call the prophets, the major and minor prophets, which are near the end of the Old Testament, right? Maybe more than any other books in the Bible, it's critical to understand uh, in order to understand the, the words of the prophets, you have to understand the world of the prophets. For these particular books, that's critical. Without understanding the world of the prophets, you really have a hard time understanding the words of the prophets. Not only do you end up misinterpreting them, but hear me, you oftentimes can walk away with a literal opposite interpretation of what they really mean if you just don't understand a little bit of the backdrop of what's happening. 
And so what I want to do real quick is I want to give you three things to really hold on to for this series, but also to help shape how you're reading a lot of the prophets so that we can really get on the same page. And so there's some things that are happening, not just in the prophets, not just in the whole book of Malachi, but even in these first five verses, right? How, how important this context is to, to showing us what's happening here. The first thing we have to understand is this, that a majority of the prophets wrote during a time of Israel being extremely disobedient and unfaithful to God. Almost universally, save a couple of books that are like more so telling stories, this is the burden of the prophet writers. They are burdened as they look out into their community, as they look out into their culture, as they look out into their brothers and their sisters, and they see an extreme disobedience and unfaithfulness to God, and it weighs on them. So the majority of what we see as a result, the majority of what we see in the prophets are calls for things to change. They want people's hearts to come back to God. And ultimately, they're, they're telling about the potential consequences, right? And also the mercies that God has extended if they would just return. But again, the consequences that are coming if they don't return. That's the first thing you need to know. The second thing we need to know is this, that Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel all focus on something called the exile, a time where Israel is conquered by other nations and taken captive in the city of Babylon. And this is an extremely, and I mean extremely, important time in Bible history. In order to understand really most of the New Testament and huge, huge chunks of this, this, these writings called the prophets, right? This has to be understood at least just a little bit. This time represents the most severe consequences uh, toward disobedience that, that we really ever see doled out by God. It, it paints a, pic a picture of a major rift between God and his people. And it's a rift that also begins a lot of themes in the Bible that start to lead us into the New Testament and that really start to prepare us for this incredible moment where we see Jesus enter the story. We'll explore this idea more one day, I promise. But right now, you just got to know that this is a huge deal for the prophets, that this single moment of them being taken captive and being taken to Babylon, it shapes so much of the story um, of the Old Testament and really of the Bible in general. And the third thing that we need to know, and probably most important to Malachi, what we're reading now is this, that Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi all focused on what's called the post-exilic period. And that's a time where the Israelites return to Jerusalem, but they are still under foreign rule. They're still under foreign power. And this is the thing. This period is filled with confusing experiences for the Israelites. They rebuild their temple, which was destroyed during the initial invasion. Eventually, they restore the, the previously destroyed walls of the city of Jerusalem, which make them feel like they're establishing their city, their culture, their nation once again. And they restore God's word to the central part of their society. And they start to restore this vision of following God communally together as a people. And Malachi takes place smack in the middle of this place that we call the post-exilic period. Scholars believe that, that Malachi takes place between or somewhere between the second temple being finished 
and the restoration of the walls of Jerusalem that we pick up on in Nehemiah and Ezra, for those of you that know about that. Now, you're probably looking at me thinking, like, it's a lot of information, big dog. What's all this for? Let me tell you. This is why it's important. Malachi, post-exilic period, temple being finished, the walls of the city of Jerusalem being restored. I mean, the, the word of God being placed back in the center and this sort of revolution of community and culture and nation that seems to be taking place. Despite the immense joy that once filled the heart of every Israelite that had returned from the exile, and despite the immense desire to be faithful to God that filled every Israelite heart when they saw the new temple for the first time, by the time we get to Malachi, this is what I'm going to say, by the time we get to Malachi, which is believed to be just maybe 10 or 15 years after the completion of this temple, nearly all of that goodwill and joy and motivation is already gone. Like many of us, the lack of accomplishments on a cultural level is believed to be one of, if not the main reason. Many Israelites, when they returned, uh, this initial group returned from exile, saw the temple rebuilt, they had these visions of glory that them as a nation and them as a people were going to be returned to the glory days of kings like David and Solomon, where they would be returned to a sort of regional status as a power and as a country that was not just existing but was independent of a foreign ruler and had a sort of honor and a sort of respect regionally. These visions of going back to where they were and gaining the clout and gaining the accomplishments and gaining the glory of those around them. Right, while they had those visions, the reality was far from that. They were still an oppressed nation allowed to practice their faith, but under the control and watchful eye of a foreign governor, a foreign oppressive agent, right, who, who had control of their day-to-day -day affairs, allowed them to worship their God and to do the things that they did, but overall had an oppressive vision of them as a lesser people or a secondary people that were slaves, that were under the rule of their nation. That was the life that they ended up living. And years after the finished work of the second temple, they still were living like this. Where had God been? Why didn't he live up to the expectations? Why hadn't he made the people and the nation great again? Why hadn't he given them more possessions? Why hadn't he given them more success? Why wasn't their social standing in the region better? Why wasn't their national influence in the region better? It's funny. It seems like the more you read the Bible, the more you realize that people really don't change. That the same things we find ourselves consumed with now are oftentimes the same things, slight variations, that we see people consumed with then, worlds apart. This is, this is the setting of Malachi. This is exactly what's happening when he's writing. And it's this environment of bitterness and of resentment and of frustration that thrusts us right in to Malachi chapter 1, verse 2, where God starts his prophecy, I have loved you. 
I have loved you. And the Israelites' response, like a selfish lover or petulant child, is, how have you loved me? How have you loved me? You see, that response, when we read it without that world of context, seems like a simple question. I've loved you. Oh, great. Tell me how you've loved me. But in reality, it's a question that's steeped in bitterness and in anger and in frustration of a people who look at God and look at their lives and question, where are you? Who are you? You say, you say you're good, and yet later on we'll hear them say, but I've seen you honor evil and silence good. Who are you really that we have been here years and we're still in the same situation? And friends, I got to tell you, and I want you to be honest with me, that if we're being real with each other, <clears throat> we actually can relate to this a whole lot. That just the simple idea of saying, how come things haven't changed? is something that rattles around in your heart and my heart the moment things don't go exactly how we want them in the time span that we want them. And the automatic response, so often for you and so often for me, is to look at God and go, how have you loved me? Tell me, how have you loved me? I see a book and I go to a church where they declare and talk about all the time how much you love me, but let me know, let me know. You tell me how much have you actually loved me? How? Show me. Because when I look at my life, when I look at my circumstances, when I look at, at the way people see me, when I look at my finances, when I look at my, my situations, I want to know because if I'm being honest with you, I don't see it. Have you ever felt like that? Let me be very honest with you. If you've never felt like that, if you've never had the sheer moment where you've looked at God and honestly and earnestly come to him like the psalmist and said, who are you? I don't believe you. Then I would dare to say, I would venture to say that there's a possibility that your faith is not built on his character, but your circumstances. Because these questions don't come up when we're comfortable. They come up when we're hurting. And our faith isn't rattled when we're comfortable. Our faith is called into question. And our intimacy with this God is called into question when it feels like we have an actual relational rift between us. And like someone who I can't just let go of, and him coming to the table as someone who can't let go of me. We enter into a conversation and simply say, we have something between us that we need to work out. But you're important enough, and I'm important enough to you, that we can't just walk away from the table. That this is forever. And like a spouse and a wife and a husband who have committed to being with each other for the remainder of their life, enter into a conversation and say, I need you to tell me what's happening here. Because the way I'm feeling and the what I feel like you're doing don't make sense to me and I just need to know, I need some assurance. 
I need to, I'm angry and I'm bitter, but I can't walk away from you. And God is there going, I have loved you. I have loved you every second of every moment, of every day, of every year, of your entire life up till now. And I will forever and ever. This is like trying to avoid a spoiler later on in a show or something like that. But there is a a verse later on in the book of Malachi that uh, I shared with some of you in our night of prayer on Friday. That there is this extraordinary verse when you when you understand just these first five verses later on in chapter three, verse six, where he says, I have not changed. I, God, have not changed. And because of that, you, Israel, have not perished. You could have been as unfaithful as you ever could have been. You could have had as many doubts as you ever could have had. You could have questioned me up and down and called me the worst names and the worst things. And you could have had such deep anger toward me. But because I have not changed, you have not perished. And because he has not changed, you are still loved. What incredible, incredible good news. This is just these beginnings, I'll be honest with you, are they're fascinating to me. Because again, these are places where doubt enters in and, and the response of God to your doubt and to my doubt to your struggle and to my struggle and to our responses to our struggle. Because hear me, these are cultural realities for the Israelites, right? These are not things that are not felt. They're felt really, truly. They're really felt. It's so hard because like when we have something like the Bible, like the Bible's, to say the least, an old book. (laughs) Being translated up and down, And everybody's like, I got a new translation, and it's super readable, and it's for today. And it's like, all right, that bad boy was still translated from a language and some writings that are thousands of years old. So it's still really hard to relate despite all the translation, despite all the preaching. So we hear things like, man, how come we're not more powerful? How come we're not more successful? How come we don't have more influence in our region? How come we're not more this or more that? And we look and go, that's so ridiculous. But if you take it and you apply it and you understand that the audience he's speaking to there has some fundamental reactions uh, that are the same as the audience he's speaking to here, and you realize that the questions of, how come I didn't get that promotion? How come my father doesn't love me? How come my mother is always disappointed in me? How come I never was successful at school? How come my circumstances never let me be good here? How come this happened? How come that happened? How come this person died? How come you didn't respect when I asked you for this? How come I prayed and prayed and prayed and I prayed and prayed and prayed and I asked and I asked and I sweated and I cried and I read the Bible every day because I think that's what you want of me and I prayed every day because I think that's what you want of me and I did this and I did that and still what I wanted, what I desired, it didn't happen. That's what they're feeling. That's how they're feeling. That's why I say that if you can relate to them, then I think you start to have a little bit of an understanding of what it means to walk hand in hand through the course of life in good times and bad with the God 
who will enter into that moment with you out of a deep love for you, not go anywhere and assure you in each and every season, I have loved you. That's why that first set of words is so incredibly powerful because the first set of words is not you have doubted. The first set of words is not you have failed. The first set of words is you're ungrateful. Need I remind you that this group of people had just been released from being captive in a city where they were foreigners just a few years before. These people probably experienced that. Isn't you're ungrateful. The first words from the prophet Malachi, the word of the Lord through the prophet is, I have loved you. And even the remainder of the words in these first five verses this requires some biblical interpretation because if you just jump in there and you're like, God hated Esau, that Esau is a word that represents the Edomites, which was an enemy of God's people throughout their history. And what God is saying is, you, you, I love you and I have loved you like a patient and loving and kind father or husband or spouse. He says, I have loved you. Look at the Edomites. I took care of them. He doesn't even go back to be like, you were just a captive people. He's like, I've done more than just that. Like, like the Edomites, I've taken care of them. Because they hurt you, because they were your enemies, I put them in their place. Not because I hate them necessarily, but because my anger toward them was kindled through my love for you. You are my people. I have loved you. The patience that God has for you and me is incredible that he would start this moment by saying, I've loved you, and you've asked, how have you loved us? And he says, here's how, here's how, here's how I've loved you. Here's how I've loved you. Friend, there's the, the reality that's here, the reality that's here that, that I have a concern about for my heart that I have a concern about for your heart is that you would wrap your faith up and I would wrap my faith up into the things that are not the point and project onto God in anger and a bitterness that's wrapped up in, in our expectations of the God he should be instead of enjoying, relating to, and having an intimate relationship with the loving God that he is. Because here's the thing, the downfall of this and the beauty of it is that God doesn't respond and go, hey, you're, you're done with, but rather the downfall where it hurts us is that in demanding he would be a God that he isn't, we fail to enjoy the God that he is. And he enters into that moment and says, I have loved you. That's the, that's the basis on which he wants to relate and enjoy us. That's the basis on which he wants you to relate and enjoy him. And everything that's wrapped up into the next several phrases of the remainder of, of our verse today is Malachi's audience, the Israelites, completely overlooking the God of the universe, the creator, the lover of their souls, the, 
the God that has freed them over and over and over again, that has been patient with them, that sees them, that knows them, that has created them and knows every hair on the head, that knows every thought, that has hemmed them in where they are before and after, and has completely missed that God looking at them and going, I have loved you. And they completely missed that in favor of saying, why don't you show me how you've loved me? In the demand of God being a God that he is not and that he does not want to be and he has no real interest in being, they completely miss the God that he is and enjoying the God that he is and knowing the God that he is, right? That's, that's where we today sit at the precipice, right? We sit on the teetering edge of that, um, how do I say it? Of missing that same thing. And this is the first page. This is the first five verses. Through the remainder of this text, there's going to be this beautiful back and forth where God is going to say, I'm this, but you ask this, but here's how I want you to come back to me. This repeated sort of mockery that takes place, and yet this repeated compassion and love that God invites us back into. Right? That's what's happening here. That's what's happening now because that's what's happening with you. That even in this moment, right, we, we could be in this room and, and legitimately have zero interest to sit here. That's mockery. That you would be in the king's presence and have zero interest to be here is a mockery of his value, his honor, and his character. And yet the king would sit here and say, but I have loved you. Every moment of our lives is this repeated experience of our failure met with the ringing, beautiful, and powerful words, I have loved you. 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 And I'm not trying to, what is the, what is the movie where Homeboy repeats it? Oh, he's not, not your fault. I'm not trying to goodwill hunting you right now. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to, to make you Matt Damon. Say it again. Robin Williams and, and Matt, I'm not trying to do that to you. But I think in some ways God is. <laughs> I think God wants to pulverize it into your mind and into your heart that he loves you. And that, that specific experience, that specific knowledge, those first words, I have loved you, are the basis from where we go from here. That every corrective action, every corrective word, every call to return, every demand, Every even moment of discipline is all rooted in that first word, I have loved you. That's where we begin this series. I think that's where our faith begins. And I think at the end of our days, like I mentioned, after all of the curiosities, the ups and the downs, the moments that made us sad, the moments that made us happy, the highs, the lows, the moments of bitterness, and the moments of joy, the end of our faith will be coming face to face with the God whose love absolutely floors us. And we realize, man, you have loved me. You have loved me. I don't got no practical application points today. I don't. I just deeply desire that the truth that you are the prize of our God's eye and that his love for you runs so deep in his veins that he aches to be with you, longs to join you, and he loves you and enjoys you, 
that that would settle in on your heart. That's my only hope for you today. If you don't change a single action this week, but walk out that door with that truth, today will have been worth it. And he will be overjoyed. And that's the beauty of this God and this character that we're talking about today and that we're worshiping today. I'm out of time. I didn't talk about this too long, but that's all. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for, this, I mean, the gift of what? The gift of your love. I am floored oftentimes as I read your word by the depths of how much you love us. I remember the day that I came to faith, God. It wasn't that I was convicted. It wasn't even that I somehow knew that you were the Lord. It wasn't even that I knew how you necessarily saved me and all the mechanics behind it. It was the simple truth that you loved me. Thank you. And please help us today respond, I love you. Jesus, I love you. Today as we begin here, Father, help through the course of the next several weeks for us to be endowed, moved, anchored in this truth that you love us. Let us start every day, every moment with that truth anchoring our heart to you. Let us encounter every circumstance, every hardship, Help build the intimacy that we have with you through this time as we reflect on the simple truth that you love us. Help us today, Father. Help us today accept that for every lying word that enters into our mind that diminishes or somehow seeks to sidestep that truth, I, through the power of your spirit, I just rebuke it now. We rebuke every lie that tells us you don't love us. We rebuke every lie that tries to separate us from the truth that we are loved by you, that in every failure, we're still loved by you, that in every mishap, we're still loved by you, that in every moment of doubt, we're still loved by you, that in every misstep, we're still loved by you. We rebuke every thought and every spiritual force that seeks to just rob even a moment of joy that we have in our love relationship with you. We just rebuke it. I rebuke it, Father. Just demolish it. Help us enjoy you. Help us start here. That way the foundation of not just our year, but the foundation of our faith would be that you have loved us. We love you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.